Good morning, Crestmont family. I count it a joy to be up here and with you today. Um, when I was worshiping just before coming up, um, I just asked Jesus if I could worship with him. And we had a cool time of worship. So I'm grateful for that. And he is present in this room. So I'm fully confident um, that he will meet us today. So I am, I believe, the third person preaching in this Ezra and Nehemiah series. Um, you heard John share kind of an overview of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then you heard Kiara introduce us to the first portion of Ezra. So I am jumping in with you today uh, to talk about Ezra 7 through 10. Um, we are going to repeat some things as each of us comes up here because we are trying to emphasize the themes and the theological truths that are thread throughout this story. It's the beautiful nature of God's narrative um, that we cannot just always pull tidbits from scripture, but we see his truth throughout. Um, so I'm going to give you a little introduction you've probably already heard before because we were all given it. <laughs> but we know that God called Abraham. So preceding this, we know that God called Abraham. He formed a nation from him called Israel. After Israel had been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years, he brought them to the promised land. That would be the first exodus. Eventually, the people's kings became wicked and the people fell into idolatry as they oppressed the poor. After the prophets had warned them, God sent the people into exile in Babylon. Um, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah takes place as the people return from exile as God has promised. Um, I want to introduce you to Ezra, who is our main leader, one of the main characters of our story today. Uh, you heard about Zerubbabel last time. He's the first leader that is covered in this text. I get the second one, which is Ezra. Um, he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And in this story, he receives favor from the Persian king to return to Jerusalem and bring back a love for the law of God. So our last leader was bringing back the temple, and Ezra is bringing back the law of God to his people to check in and see how the law of God was being followed um, post-exile. Uh, he had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and teaching its degrees and laws in Israel. He was a priest and teacher of the law, and he was also described as a scribe, which was actually a title given to him in the Persian um, Empire. He was seen as uh, sort of the Jewish representative in the Persian Empire. Um, as you may know or may not know, because I know some of us miss Sundays, some of us go to the bathroom, some of us are downstairs, I'm going to recap that Ezra and Nehemiah is one scroll. So we are looking at a three-part, one huge story that is not linear. Okay, this is why you have seen images thrown up here of the chronological, which I see those images and I get really overwhelmed because I try to like act like I know, like all the stories that line up and, and I have to go back to my Bible, honestly, and I'm like, okay, this makes sense. But the author of Ezra and Nehemiah does not want to tell a chronological linear story. He has important theological themes that he highlights through these three leaders that he continues to reveal the heart of God and honestly, the failure of man. Uh, so many of us, when we're presented with a story or a movie, consciously or subconsciously want a happy ending. As much as we're like, oh, that's so like predictable, at the end of the movie, we do not want to leave in tears. We want to leave knowing the hero conquered. He won. He was victorious. He learned something. And everyone is happy. The princess got married. La-di-da or the princess just became the queen or something like that. Um, and 
this is not the tale that we are told in these three narratives. These three leaders fail in some way to meet the heart of God in their stories. In their attempt to honor God and honor the rebuilding of Israel, each of them fails. So we are going to see today how Ezra fails. Sorry, guys. It's kind of a downer. <laughs> There's been many, um, many sermons preached from these that highlight some great leadership lessons that we can learn, and we can learn a lot from Ezra. We can learn. I mean, he was a man who devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. There is blessing in devoting your heart and mind to the observance of the law of the Lord. There is something we can learn from that. But the greater narrative, the author really tries to push home. In spite of all of this, he missed God's heart. So that's what we're going to explore today. Um, I, it's interesting that Pamela came up today because when I thought about this, I was like, oh, we all like the hero's journey story where uh, Kesha Marie might know this because she did this in Alcop Impact in her cohort. Uh, they studied this, this narrative structure where you get this unlikely hero who is called into the unknown and along the way he faces trials and he learns lessons and he faces a giant hurdle he needs to overcome and ultimately he overcomes it and in the end he brings back what he has learned to his, his home and there is a beautiful story, a big climax, wonderful ending. Again, this isn't present in this story. Um, but we know that we do have that story in Jesus. So another thing I want us to have in our minds as we explore this is when we um, engage scripture, we can always ask ourselves, where does this point to Jesus and where does this miss the mark? Where does our hope in Jesus find a place in the story of our protagonist in, in the scripture and where are we left wanting more, which is ultimately where we should be because our hope is in Jesus and the new kingdom of God on earth. Um, if we place our hope in man or a system, we will always be let down every time. And that's what points us to Jesus. Um, because Timothy tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This passage of scripture is on, um, I promise I'm going to get to the scripture. I just have a couple bunny trails I'm going to take us on. This passage of scripture is on the wall in the arch of the, my alma mater. Um, I attended Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And um, I thought about this because I just, I feel like the Lord is wanting us to renew a love for uh, his word in our body. And as a sophomore or junior in high school, uh, I was a part of a Sunday school class that had a beloved couple uh, that was teaching, I want to say the 11th and 12th graders. I think that's what class I was in, or 10th and 11th, I don't remember what. They were loved, and for one reason or another, they had to leave. And this new couple replaced them. And they were quirky. Is like the, we loved them, but they were not like our familiar couple. Okay, They came in, but their impact on my life and my desire to study scripture carries through to this day. Because as weird as the stuff they had us do, um, they introduced me to an idea that I had the capacity to ask questions of scripture and seek answers from God and other people with wisdom. And that is something that I just want to throw out today. I feel as though the Lord is renewing in our body a return to his word and a return that it can be every single one of us in the seats today that ask questions. Just the simple question of, where is Jesus in this? How does this reflect the kingdom of God? It does not take hours of 
reading commentaries and, and watching sermons to ask the simple question. Um, so that's what I want us to be asking today and as we leave this place. I don't know if that's too bold to say, but I said it. Um, so second Ezra is the second leader. Um, every tale in the three leaders is similar in that it tells of God providentially leading a Persian king to encourage an Israelite leader to return and build, rebuild um, what has been lost in exile. Um, in Ezra 1 through 6, we have the temple. Ezra 7 through 10, we have the Torah. And in oh, next week or so, we will learn about the rebuilding of the wall. So our passage. Um, Ezra, I want to give you, I will not read three chapters of the Bible to you today because... I care for you. Um, but I want to give you kind of like a snapshot of each chapter, and then we're going to break down some important parts of um, each of the chapters. So Ezra 7, King... I practice this. The king sends Ezra to Jerusalem, okay? Um, so he gives a letter to Ezra. Um, he blesses the journey, and he gives him every resource necessary to begin to worship in the temple and return to the law of God. Ezra 8, and I promise we're going to dig deeper, but Ezra 8, the gracious hand of God leads their journey. We see him beseech God in the middle of their journey and him protect them. Um, there's also some genealogies in there, which you'll be thankful I didn't read through today. Um, Ezra 9, once Ezra gets to Jerusalem, he encounters the biggest issue of our story. Um, which is the sins of the returned exiles who have intermarried with people um, from other um, nations. And then Ezra 10, his attempts at spiritual revival to bring people back to the law of God ultimately depart from the heart of God. So let's get into this. Ezra 7, he has commissions. Um, I think it's on the next slide. I'm not sure. Okay. So I'm going to go Ezra 7:14, which is before this verse. Uh, it says, You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Okay? So when I, <laughs> I wrote on the like, side of my page, law, law, law. Everything about Ezra's mission is about a return to the law. And because he had devoted himself to the law, he was knowledgeable and able to bring the community back into alignment with the law of God. He was also given an amazing amount of resources to worship in the temple from the royal treasury of the Persian king. So he, in this chapter, he is given stuff from the royal treasury, and in the letter that the uh, king writes... For Ezra to hold along his journey, he says, I want all of you along this way to provide the necessary items for this group of people to worship in the temple. Uh, he says, any free will offerings that you collect can be used. And he relies on the wisdom from God that is seen in Ezra to utilize these resources to bring the people back to um, this. In 725, it says, And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Um, in the letter, it also reveals that Ezra was very clear to the king that the Lord blessed those that followed him, and there was not blessing for those who turned away from him. So there is kind of the idea that this mission from the Persian king, while ordained by God, was slightly selfish in protecting um, the Persian empire. He sees a man of God who is blessed by God, and he goes, okay, I heard about your God, and I'm a little concerned, so we are going to honor him. I'm going to give you everything. You are the representative for my empire. I am sending you to restore this, because I may have a fear of your God. I know what he's capable of. So this is a slightly selfish mission, yet an intricate part of God's 
plan for the revitalization of the Jewish people. Um, the chapter ends, and that's where this slide comes. The chapter ends with Ezra praising God for the favor that he has received from the king, knowing it was initiated by God himself. So Ezra 8, um, the gracious hand of God leads their journey. Ezra 8, 21 through 23 says, There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast, so that we might humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children, with all our possessions. So here we see a man who is very well versed in the law of God, seeking God along his journey to come alongside him and protect him. Because he told the king, he was like, I told the king that God is for us and that God looks out for us, so now we need to pray and fast that God looks out for us along our journey. I didn't ask, because I felt kind of weird saying that about God and then asking the king for protection. So we need to humble ourselves, come before God, fast, and ask for his protection. Because I need to walk the talk. It says, so we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Now Ezra, I want to introduce a little bit more about him. Ezra is a young leader. He's in his early 20s, potentially 22. He is leading not 10 people, not hundreds of people. He's leading thousands of people out of exile back into Jerusalem. So I just want you to imagine the weight of that mantle on Ezra's human shoulders. As a 22-year-old, um, taking Israel out of exile and returning to the ways of the Lord. Many people reference this as the second exodus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The second exodus, that means, oh, I, Ezra, in some way, am kind of like Moses. That's a huge mantle to think about as a young leader. Young leader who loves God, who has devoted his life to the law, but is tasked with bringing a nation back into alignment with the law of the Lord. I get anxious just thinking about that. Um... So once uh, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem, we get to Ezra 9, and he is lamenting the sins of the returned exiles. So once he gets there, the leaders come to Ezra, and they share with him that some of their they have taken daughters and wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So they have married outside of the people of Israel. Um, and here's where we see our first departure from the word and heart of God in Ezra's story. Because in his understanding of this, we go from this understanding as the Israelites, as the holy people of God, set apart, who have been asked to set themselves apart and to stay close to the laws and um, religion of their God, and to not be tempted to worship other gods and partake in pagan practices, okay? See, so that the set-apart nature of God's people is not ethnicity. And here in Ezra's Lament, we see the first time where we go from a holy people to a holy race. And Ezra applies something um, ethnically that is more about spiritual practice and living of life. And we know that this is not a part of the kingdom of God. This is not what God intended when he set apart a holy people. Um... A literal translation of the Hebrew will be holy seed. The use of this phrase echoes what we read in Deuteronomy 7.6. The focus of this concept is not genetics, but a living relationship between Israel and God. The people of Israel have been set apart as holy to the Lord, and they must remain religious, pure, 
maintain religious purity, not polluting themselves by following the practices of the nations around them. At no point in time in this narrative is it saying it is um, specific to racial purity. Marrying outside of the nation of Israel was not forbidden in the Torah. The warning against intermarriage always focused on avoiding the practice of other religions being tempted to fall into that. Um, because we see this throughout scripture. We see Ruth marry out of um, the nation of Israel. Moses, Joseph, Joshua. God's heart for his people to honor him in Ezra's encounter of this issue is skewed towards ethnic exclusion and redirects from the heart of God. So already in Ezra's story, he is in, he's carrying this mantle. This young leader is carrying this mantle. I need to bring God's people back to his law. He knows the law. And yet, we see in the midst of that mantle, a fear rise up in him. Oh my goodness, we've, we're doing it again. <laughs> we're doing it again. Um, he thinks back to God's grace to his people and in their history and how they have continually become wicked and entered into sin. He was given this huge mantle to bring these people back to the law, and the first thing he encounters when he gets there is sin that he believes is um, going to bring God's wrath and not his grace. Um, I think about this... I think about this, so I have a degree in education, and because of that, I've been privileged to have the opportunity to substitute teach at my daughter's school for the past three years. And I, <laughs> on a much smaller scale, empathize with Ezra, um, because, you know, because I got the privilege of having, like, learning about education, I got to do things like educational theory, what do I believe is good in a classroom, how do people learn, all of this that, that leads itself to a holistic education, uh, what I believe is good, good practice. Um, when you are in a classroom with 20 to 25 students who are not paying attention to you, some of them are standing on the desk. Others of them went to the bathroom like 20 minutes ago and you just realized they're still gone. Um, it is really easy to go into panic mode and all of the theory of holistic education goes out the door and you find yourself trying to rectify the situation that is in front of you out of fear for losing control of the classroom, out of fear of being identified as like not a good teacher, um, all of these things are going through your head. So on a smaller scale, I understand um, that moment of panic that Ezra must have faced when he goes, I just brought thousands of people back to Israel to love his law, and they are already, like, terribly off course. I need to fix this. This is, the, this is what's on me. I need to fix this. So in Ezra 10, I mean, in Ezra 9, we see him repent. We see him confess the sins of the people of Israel. We see, see him tear his tunic, rip out his beard, and spend all day um, beseeching the Lord on behalf of the sin of the people. The people join him in lamenting this. Um, so this is a place of sorrow and lament, and it's, it's a holy place. Ezra does lead them to a holy place in that they are repenting of a sin that they've committed um, by, because marrying outside of the nation of Israel also brought with it the intermingling of pagan worship. And that is where the sin lies in this passage. I want to be very clear. The sin of intermarriage lies there. That was what was affecting the post-exilic Israelites in this story. Okay, so we have a man who is bringing people into repentance, and we've already seen a tiny missing of the mark where we've kind of redefined this holy people. We've redefined the issue of sin that exists, and we've made it about ethnicity. Um, so in Ezra 10... 
this is where we depart even more from the heart of God. Uh, then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So the plan to address the sin that was occurring was to have them divorce and send away the wives and children in these relationships. And this was a plan created in community with other men who decided that this was the approach that they were going to take. Um, and we know that Malachi, a contemporary prophet at this time, revealed God's heart towards divorce, and it was that he hated it. And we also know that God's heart towards widows and orphans and foreigners is not that of exclusion, but inclusion in the kingdom of God. So we see the final brick fall out of Ezra's story in that he did not seek God counsel for his resolution to this sin problem. Um, I want you, we have an example of God's heart towards um, Hagar and her son who were sent out in Genesis 21. It says, but God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy in your slave, Reuben. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So we have an instance of sin where a child was born out of um, being with a slave woman, and the result of that was them being sent out into the wilderness. But listen to this. In the desert, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. This is just one example of God's hearing the cry of the orphan and the widow and his gracious response to them. Exodus twenty two twenty one says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. So here we have two passages that reveal the Lord's heart towards the outcast, the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. And his heart is not for exclusion. Even in the midst of sin, it is not for exclusion of the people. The Lord never commanded Ezra to send the wives and children away. We do not see that in this passage. This was not the heart of the Lord or the resolution of sin in this passage. The Ezra that we encountered earlier in this passage, who was quick to seek the Lord in the desert, to fast and pray, to invite his favor, now bears the weight of the second exodus, and in fear, takes what he knows of God's law without seeking the Lord. Thus, essentially honoring the law and simultaneously breaking the heart of the Lord. Because he has taken the law without seeking God along with it. Um, so what can we learn um, from this story? God's heart is always oriented toward the vulnerable. And God's kingdom is one of invitation, not exclusion. So the solution in Ezra to send them away departed from the heart of God. And that is where our hero failed to seek God and, and understand his heart and how to address the sin issue in um, Israel at this time. So many sermons on this book, I think I've said it before, highlight valuable leadership um, 
lessons that can come from it, and there are some great leadership lessons. Like if I did a sermon, um, I'm not encouraging this because we are encouraging the entire narrative of Scripture because the author desired it. Because if we just pluck Ezra out and we just talk about when he fasted and prayed in the desert, that's awesome. That's a great lesson. It's not the whole story, and it's not the purpose of the book. So you can do that and encourage people to fast and pray. I would encourage you to find that lesson somewhere else in the Bible because the author wants us to see the entire trajectory of Ezra's story to understand what God is teaching us here. Uh, my first sermon I ever preached here was on Nehemiah 1, and it was a sermon like that. And it was good, but now I see I uh, missed some of the point of the book. <laughs> so we can learn some leadership from these things. We can say, where is Jesus in this leader? And we say, ah, he sought the Lord. Ah, he devoted himself to the law. And then we can say, ooh, he missed the mark there. He missed Jesus and his kingdom there. And that is just as holy as pulling out the positives of the story. Um, so what do we learn from Ezra? Along the journey, he sought the Lord. That, so I have one... <laughs> One positive thing we can learn from Ezra and the three negatives. Sorry, Ezra. Um, he fasted and prayed and sought the Lord on their journey. He sought to ask the Lord what to do. And that is a reflection of Jesus because we know Jesus did nothing that he didn't see the Father doing. In John 5, 19, it says, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. Jesus can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus declared, I can't do anything without the Father. Therefore, if you are leading people and pointing them to Jesus, your decisions should be rooted in seeking out the Father, fasting and praying, understanding his word and also his voice as we listen for his direction today. Um, he confessed sin, and he encouraged repentance. This is a holy thing. This is the thing we as a church are called to do. It is the most beautiful, freeing thing of the kingdom of God to confess sin, repent, and be free. Many of us in this room have experienced the blessing of the Lord when we repent and are free from sin. So he led others in that. And he pursued holiness. He devoted his life to the word of God. These are all beautiful, positive things from Ezra's story. But then we start to see the breakdown in his leadership. He allowed fear to overshadow his practice of inclining his ear to God. Similar to me in the classroom, forgetting the 10-page paper I wrote on like my theory of education when I can't even hear myself think because um, kids are going crazy. He had the burden of what God had asked him to do and fear, which, allow, which allowed him to incline his ear to the men around him, to leadership around him, but not the Lord. And that is where we see his first... I, I have no doubt that the Lord would be able to remind him of his own heart towards the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. If he had inclined his ear to the Lord, he would have given him wisdom in that decision. It would not have been this way. Um, in Ezra 9, 7, we see his fear rise up because it says, From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. He is holding this knowledge of the guilt of the Israelite people because of our sins. We and our kings, our priests, have been subjected to the sword in captivity so he's saying, we keep doing this, and he loses sight of the character of God. Because he says, but now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. So he's saying, oh man, he gave us, he gave us another chance. We have this chance. We're already blowing it. What are we doing? But I think there's a lesson in the character of God and an understanding that we see in Isaiah 54, 7 through 8, that says God's wrath is for a moment, while grace and steadfast love last forever. So Ezra, in his fear of missing the mark, and in his fear remembering slavery and exile, 
forgets the character of God and emphasizes his wrath um, and the fear of entering into that wrath again, forgetting that it is not a brief moment that God will show his people grace and mercy. They will, it lasts forever. Grace and steadfast love last forever in light of sin, in the midst of sin, in repentance, in the consequence of our sin, it lasts forever. So he's lost sight of the character of God in this moment. And he has a limited understanding or skewed understanding of the kingdom of God. Luke 13, 29 says, And people will come from all over the world, from the east and the west and the north and the south, to take their places in the kingdom of God. We are privileged to understand that through the new covenant purchased by Jesus' blood, barriers have been broken down to the kingdom of God. The same God who grafted these nations into his family, who was the same God who was leading Ezra. He didn't change. So his heart for the kingdom of God didn't change. Ezra could have inclined his ear to the Lord who invites the nations into his kingdom, and he would have directed his steps. Um, so I have a couple applications for us today. Um, intimacy with God grows within us a deeper understanding of both his word and his heart. As we draw near to God through reading his scripture, worshiping him, and inclining our ear to listen to him, we understand the complex nature of his law and his kingdom. I'm not saying that Ezra had an easy job at all. I would not wish that on myself terrifying as a 22-year-old. But an intimacy with God capable of bringing a nation back to his law. So our habit of reading the scripture, listen, I went to Bible school, did, you know, four years of learning, studying, and teaching the Bible, message, all, all this stuff. Did an Old Testament um, class, I went over the whole Old Testament, New Testament, and the habit of reading scripture is not easy for me still. <laughs> it is a habit that I know is close to the heart of God, and it is one that I implement in my life, but it is not always an easy one. I think some people find it easier, but it is a habit that draws us closer to the heart of God when we seek his word. Um, and sometimes we have to break down our conceptions of what encountering the word looks like. I grew up in the church, um, and I had a really small understanding of what reading God's word was for a very long time, probably like 23 years. And it involved, it had to be in the morning, it had to be every day, it had to, um, I had to write in a journal afterwards. Uh, and if I missed it, I had to repent and try to do it again. And I was freed from that. Praise Jesus. <laughs> if that's how you do it, because that is how your mind works, amen. But I would encourage you to inquire of the Lord how he can develop in you a habit of reading his word in a way that honors him, in a way that honors your household, in a way that honors your time, but also honors him. That will bring us in more alignment with the heart of God. Because Ezra knew the word and he still missed it. So while we are reading, we are also listening. That's where a lot of, I think, the, the extra things that we do at the tab really help us to practice listening. When we attend worship nights, we observe people listening for the word of God. When we are in community with each other, we share what we hear the Lord is saying to us. We can practice not only reading the word, but listening for its truth and bringing those two together and asking God, what does this mean for us today? I read your word. I don't quite understand it. Lord, I am listening for your leading. And then where does our version of the kingdom of God exclude those who are to be invited into the kingdom of God? We must boldly preach the truth found in scripture. There is no denial of that. We are daily battling the kingdom of this world. We are daily coming up against the motives and the methods of the enemy who is seeking 
to steal, kill, and destroy, which means truth must be preached from the pulpit. But we can never let our fear of man overshadow the heart of God, which he freely shares with us. We must be in communion with the Lord to give us the wisdom. I can't tell you, the community of of preachers at the tab is a beautiful thing because we study and we listen and we listen to each other. It is such a blessing because I can be redirected because of God's leading, because people are listening and going, this is the truth. It's kind of hard to like chew on. I actually texted Brooke and Christine earlier this week about a portion that I was really struggling with, how to honor the body and navigate it and preach the truth. It is a reality of understanding the truth of God, but we cannot let fear of man stop us from preaching boldly what scripture says is true of the kingdom of God. Um, And that reminded me of a passage that I have clung tightly to since my senior year of high school. This really brought me back to my high school years. I've loved it. Um, But I was like, uh, I think I I was, we had a dinner, our youth group had a dinner, and, and I was like closing out with like a little word and verse, and I assigned this verse to our senior class, which was Colossians 1, 9 through 11. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. This is my prayer for us today. That we continually ask God to fill us with knowledge of his will. How powerful would that have been for Ezra to beseech the Lord and just say, Lord, fill me with wisdom in this moment where I am afraid that your people are straying from your law. Fill me with wisdom and understanding and knowledge of your will, not man's will, which was in fear to isolate law, which was misunderstood and send away people who could have been invited into the kingdom of God. It's my prayer for our body that we grow in wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. The result of that is that we would live a life worthy of the Lord. The result of asking the Lord is that we would come into more alignment with the law. It wasn't following the law first and then God spoke to us. God speaks to us and we are daily refined in our ability to draw closer to him and obedience to him. I think sometimes we fear man and we fear misrepresenting God. Um, when we talk to others about the hope that we have in him, we fear um, that because what we know of God and yet we entered into sin, that it's somehow like irreparable. And these are all just lies of the enemy. And when we go back to God's word and when we seek his will, he can speak truth into those moments and say, that sin is no greater and the blood of Jesus covers that. Um, You might have fumbled your words in sharing something from the Bible, but I'm God, so I can handle that. And you might have spoken truth that caused someone to walk away from you for a moment, but I will bless and honor that. Because you spoke the truth of the word, and it is on me to draw that person into the kingdom of God. So if you spoke a hard truth, that is what I asked you to do. And when we incline our ear to the Father... We can have peace in that, which will dispel fear and give us confidence that the Lord is covering not only us, but those who he has called us to speak to. We steward the word of God and we steward his voice. And I want to encourage us to continue to grow in our ability to incline our ear to the Lord when we hear hard things when we wait for healing, when we see sin, 
when we have hard conversations, we must incline our ear to the Lord, and he will direct our path. Thank you, Mary. Praise God. Yeah, let's incline our ear now together. Lord, I'm reminded that you said uh, that you search the scriptures, that in them um, you may have life, but they point to me. Lord, in you is life, and we love the Bible because, Jesus, you're the Word of God. Lord, you said on this, on the last day of the great feast that's actually being celebrated, this, that last day today on the Jewish calendar, if you're thirsty, come to me, and out from within you will flow rivers of living water. So, Jesus, we come to you to get your heart. Because it's by your Spirit, like Mary taught, and that is Mary, that which is Mary's prayer, that we gain understanding. And so we join in with Mary in her prayer for understanding right now. And we come to you, Jesus. And we say, Lord God, in response to your call on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Pour out your Spirit on us. We come to you, Jesus, in response to that prayer, that call rather, Lord, when you said, come to me and out from within you will flow rivers. So Lord, we pray now in the prayer of of Zechariah, contemporary, of Ezra and Zerubbabel who said, ask for rain in the time of rain. (laughs) Lord, we ask, pour out your Spirit on us. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and knowledge and power and the fear of the Lord, that we would delight in your law, that we would delight in your name, that we would delight to delight in you, that we would experience your delight from which to live, to love, to move, and to have our being. So Lord, right now, we wait on you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus. Let's just posture our hearts. If it helps you to extend your hands in a receiving posture, do that. agree in your heart. Lord, we repent of looking at our Bibles out of habit or as ways to try to get your approval or as a way of merely following the law. Because in you we have life. So Lord God, would you orient our hearts to catch your heart in your word and your hunger for your word. Lord, fill us with your hunger and your thirst for your word, for you. You said, Lord, that you yearn jealously for the Spirit of God inside of us. And so by you, Holy Spirit, would we yearn as a people for your word. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to study the Scriptures in the Spirit. Lord, this is our prayer together this morning. Teach us to study the Bible in the Spirit. (laughs) Lord, teach us to catch your heart. To go for your heart, Lord God, even as you come for ours, Lord. Lord, and I'm reminded in this moment as we close in prayer, Lord, that you desire our hearts. You want us to give you our hearts, even as you want us to seek your heart. So if you can agree with me, would you just give the Lord your heart? Some of you, it's brokenness of heart. The Lord says, a broken and contrite heart I don't despise. Come to Him right where you are. Let him mend. 
your heart. Others of you, like in that passage where David came to him in great sin, horrible sin, but you didn't despise it. So if for you, it's in the midst of your sin or because of your sin, come to him, don't run from him. Like David did. Confess your sins to the Lord. Confess your sin to one another. Pray, let's pray for one another that we may be healed. So Lord, we come to you, Lord, forgive us that which we've done and that which we've left undone. We come to you and we give you our heart right where we are. Others of you, it's just receiving his love afresh. Lord, we come and we open our hearts to your light to receive your love afresh. And Lord, we thank you that right now, regardless of whether we've come in with hurts, regardless of if we've come with sin, regardless of if we've come just to receive more of you, Lord, that your light brings life into all those places, into our hearts. So Lord God, we, re we give you our hearts right where we are and pray fill them with your light fill them with your love thank you that you're healing you're forgiving and you're filling us right now you're giving us your spirit to search for you in your scriptures to catch your heart the spirit of the law that gives life with your spirit. And I just declare that we are a people who, like Moses, knew your ways and not just your acts. We bless your ways among us, Lord God. The way of your heart. <laughs> not just, oh, I heard that story of what God's doing on mission through the Genesis Collective. Would we catch your heart in what God's doing through the Genesis Collective, not in what you're doing, Lord, through the Genesis Collective, not just what's happening, the acts, what's being done, but would we catch the why, the vision, you, Jesus, your face, your heart, your light. In Jesus' name.